thanks to NetSuite by Oracle for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. NetSuite is the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. That's netsuite.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, December 10th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's show, we're going to try to make sense of all of this market selling that's going on. Of course, we'll tap into Twitter and give you one to watch. But we're beginning this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. Dr. Philip Swicegood is a professor of finance at Wofford College and chairs the Department of Accounting, Business, and Finance. He's also part of the James Atkins Fund, a student-run fund that provides Wofford students with real-life investment experience by managing a diversified investment portfolio. On this week's Between Two Fools, Philip and I talked about the James Atkins Fund and the unique way they're using the fund's gains to help people in less fortunate parts of the world pursue their entrepreneurial dreams. So, Philip, give us an idea of who you are and, and how you ultimately got to Wofford. I know you got to Wofford in 2005, but you have a, a very interesting work history. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. This is my 14th year that I've been here at Wofford College. I teach finance here and I chair the Department of Accounting and Finance. I get to work with a bunch of great colleagues and some really bright, motivated students here. Uh, before coming here, uh, I taught uh, some before at other institutions that had also done a PhD at uh, Florida State, done some graduate work, MBA, University of Texas. I'd also worked uh, for a while in the um, banking industry and as a banking regulator with the U.S. Treasury Department for a while. Um, and so it's it's been a fun journey getting here, but I'm right now doing what I love best, which is hanging out with students, helping them learn the nuances, the art and science of finance, and getting to do some cool things with them as they learn that process and start to learn to put it in practice. Yeah, I guess whenever you're uh, doing something that you enjoy and it really doesn't feel like work, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I certainly came to that realization when I started here at The Fool back in 2010. And, and I mean, it was certainly plain to see when I was down there visiting a, a few weeks ago that, that you have a, a very highly engaged class there in, in the you know it's it's it was just a lot of fun to fun to see um, I wanted to go a little bit more uh, in depth here with uh, the James fund because this to me is a really interesting facet of what you all are doing down there at Wofford that didn't exist when I was there I graduated in 95. Um, as an economics major, uh, this is something that it looks like the the James Fund, uh, I guess really the inaugural meeting was held in September of 2008. But uh, tell us a little bit about the James, it's the James Atkins Fund, right? Yes, yes. Um, a little over 10 years ago, um, one of our alum, Mike James, um, he and I had had some conversations. He kind of called a vision of we wanted, just like in chemistry, you learn you learn best chemistry by actually doing it. I mean, you need the theory, you need the formulas, um, but you actually learn it best by going into a lab and adding the heat and mixing in the elements and the compounds and Every just, once just getting in your hands dirty with it. And blow so something I, up. I had, yeah, we blow <laughs> stuff up sometimes, yes. We blow up portfolios occasionally. Yeah, we all have. Um, <laughs> but we, I just had that vision. We needed something like that here for our students who really wanted to learn 
about investing um, to actually learn it by practice and, and start putting theory into into action and test it out and see what works, see what doesn't work. That's usually the best experience is one of the best reinforcers of, of knowledge. Um, and so we talked to Mike James. He, he caught that vision and he said, hey, I'm willing to donate a $100,000 for you guys to kind of launch this fund. Let's get it up and running. And so we did that about uh, 10 and a half years ago. Um, ironically, it was right in the midst of markets melting down in our last uh, recession. Perfect we timing. It off at, oh, yes, in <laughs> September of, of 08. And if you remember, I think uh, March of 09, about five months later, was the bottom of the of the market. So yeah, I remember it well. We're, we're we're kind of learning this trial by fire, but it was it was it was fine. It was a great learning experience, and um, we got it up and running a few years ago. Um, another one of our alum just loved what we were doing and said, "Hey, I want to help you guys scale this up." So Robbie Atkins gave another hundred thousand um, to help bolster this a bit. The way we run it here is we model it somewhat uh, like the the way the college's endowment is run, which is a, a mixed asset class portfolio. Uh, a lot of equity, some fixed income, a um, little bit of alternative and real estate and those kind of things. So we we when we set it up, we decided to do mostly our asset allocation based on uh, the way the trustees had set up the, the college's endowment. When we have a similar, you know, long range time frame. Um, moderate amount on the risk, um, good strategy on diversification. And then kind of taking that as a given, um, then I have 20 students who are part of this. They do it. This is extracurricular, so they're not getting a, a grade for it, but it is highly competitive. We we have about 10 new students a year rolling into the program, as about 10 graduate each year. And we often will have 30, 35 applications for those 10 slots. So it's wow. pretty competitive to get into, which means we get really, you know, motivated students who are who are serious about wanting to learn the skill sets of of actually investing. Yeah, that's I, I didn't realize it was in that high demand. That's phenomenal because I also was reading where I mean, you don't have to be a finance or econ major. I mean, the program it, the fund is open for anyone any of the students to apply, right? Absolutely. And so we've had, you know, biology majors and history majors and government majors and uh, and that's you know part of the Wofford ethos is we we think that kind of good broad-based liberal arts education helps. So, especially like when we have a biology major, somebody's pre-med track and we start looking at one of the you know, the drug companies who's working on a pipeline of drugs, and we're trying to do due diligence um, in that kind of company. You know, when they've got a little bit of a biology major, that that gives us some insight then on, okay, how serious are they if they're in, say, phase two or phase three of the FDA trials, and what's their probability of success, and helping us, our research teams, figure out how big is this market potentially. And um, so those kind of things, yeah, they, I love having students from multiple disciplines and backgrounds. Most of them, obviously, are accounting, finance, or econ-oriented, but it certainly is not limited to to those by any means. I'm just primarily looking for students who have a passion for wanting to learn it and are willing to work hard. Well, yeah, I mean, they can do that. I can work with them. So the do you – I mean, even if you uh, – so so assuming you, you have the program filled and throughout the course of a year, you know, the team is putting some, some investment ideas through the ring or whatever, do you find yourself mm-hmm. stepping out – into different 
uh, majors, different classes at at the school to get some some sort of boots on the ground opinion there from people with more expertise in the space. Do you ever have you ever bring students in to who perhaps they aren't really members of the fund, but they could come in there and shed some more light on something like you know a drug company or that particular mm-hmm. market? Well, certainly when the we break the the. The 20 students, we break them into four research teams, and they each have kind of areas where they're primarily focusing on. Gotcha. And so when they're – I ask them their, – their task each month is we have monthly group meetings where formally we do our presentations and voting and, and that. But leading up to that, I ask them to bring their single best idea. Each team is supposed to do that. Nice. And so as they're kind of honing in on that, that single best idea that they're going to pitch to us, um, certainly they are, they're fanning out across the campus. And even sometimes we're calling alum or anybody else that we've got connections with. I've had, you know, I find through the grapevine, some student's parent is working somewhere doing something. And, and there's been times we are where we've given them a call and said, hey, what do you know about this company? What, what do they do? What do they What's their competitive advantage or what's their customer service like um, and, and what's their growth potential in the market? Those kind of questions, yes. We'll, we'll kind of dig anywhere and everywhere, which is exactly what I want. I want students to learn how to do that kind of messy research. I mean, yeah. some stuff, yes, you can get on Bloomberg and crunching the numbers, but at times you've got to do some uh, some more messy quantitative as well as qualitative research and you, sometimes you got to be creative in how and where you get that that information. Because I mean, realistically, as far as the key numbers, we're not going to find out anything more than what everybody else knows that you can see in the ten Ks and ten Qs. Yeah, hard um, to keep. We do that at minimum. Hard but to there's keep also anything. some soft data um, <laughs> on figuring out is this really a great company or not that right. we're trying to. Yeah, well, I mean, information into. flows so quickly now. I mean, you can't really keep anything a secret. It's not. It's not like back in the day when when Warren Buffett was down in the library, uh, S and P Moody's or whatever, and, and you know doing that research that no one else wanted to do. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, I, when I was down there, I, you guys were talking to me a lot about about the fun, but you went into something that you all are doing with the returns that you generate um, from the fund, which I found absolutely fascinating. I mean, I. I I know that you don't. It's not every school that has a fund like this. I mean, I've seen a few of them that do. I think it's 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 just a terrific idea. But but what you guys are doing with these with these returns I, is something I've never heard of, and I know our listeners would love to learn more about. So tell us what you actually do with the returns that you generate from that fund. Um, you know, year in and year out. Yeah, we've. Well, for the 10 years we've been in operation, we've earned a little over 10% per year as our average return for the fund. You've beaten um, the market. Is, yes, yes. <laughs> um, this is with a bunch of students, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is which is phenomenal. It, it cracks me up. But, it you know, one, it shows you what you can do with good, hard research. Um, and anyway, we've, I don't know whether it's by fortune or by design, but anyway, we've, we've just had a wonderful track record so far. But... Taking that profit, then you know, every other student managed fund that I know in the U.S., whether it's undergrad or graduate programs, they they just take all that profit and they just reinvest it and grow the portfolio, which right. is fine. But we started talking fairly early on in the soon after the fund was born. Um, is there something we want to do creative with it? And again, this is part of that the Wofford ethos, not just to 
do well, but maybe also do good. Um, and, and so I have been following ever since my probably my days at University of Texas in the MBA program, I came across my, the idea of micro lending back then. Um, a guy named Muhammad Yunus started um, the Grammy Bank. He's since won a Nobel Prize for it, and that model has spread throughout the world in developing economies around the world. And so several years ago, I started just kicking the idea of around, um, would you guys be interested in maybe us treating this like an endowment? Maybe we take four, four and a half, five percent per year of the profits um, and see about maybe the possibility of us doing microloans somewhere in the developing economy. And the students just absolutely love the idea. So I spent some time um, just following some connections with um, Ron Robinson, one of our chaplains here. He had some friends of his over in Charlotte, some bankers who were kind of running, separately running the same idea. Um, and they had just started doing some microloans down in northern Haiti in an area called Capetian, mm-hmm. which is the second largest city in, in Haiti. Um, so I tagged along with them and just saw what they were doing, kind of watched them try to figure out best practices, what I liked about what they were doing, and maybe any things we might be doing differently. And obviously, as a, this was um, the first time I'd been down to, to Haiti back then, and this was, I guess, nine years ago now. Um, and just seeing the poverty there, but at the same time, seeing so much potential. These these are people who have strong work ethic, but they're so restricted in in the physical environment, the the policy and regulations that they're in, the lack of infrastructure. Um, but the real impediment for a lot of them is just lack of capital. Yeah, that, that's the number one thing that holds them back. And it doesn't take much for for the typical families that we're working with down there. Um, average income, family income for them for a year is between a thousand and twelve hundred dollars for an entire year. Wow, which is mind-boggling to me that anybody can survive <laughs> off that. Yeah. But they're they're figuring out ways to do it, and mostly they're just cobbling together these little businesses. A lot of them, you know, there are things that they just run out of their house, um, and they're they're doing anything and everything they can to survive. So I, I got to see that firsthand, and it just affirmed to me. My goodness, you know, even if we take just a few thousand dollars out of our student managed fund um, and take it down there, loans of even a couple hundred bucks can be completely life transformative for people in third world like Haiti. And so we decided to take the plunge and at least um, experiment, see how it went. So the that first year we um, we took down, I believe it was uh, $6,000 and um Started surveying, and I took some students down with me to. And we just and we've got some connections of. Um, there's a couple of NGOs down there who do a lot of medical work. Um, a group called New Hope for Haiti, who has um, had an affiliation with um, some friends of mine over in, in Charlotte. Um, and we we partner with them because um, for the doctors that work with New Hope for Haiti, they're often doing these free rural medical clinics, and they're the only doctor a lot of people in northern Haiti have. Um, but, th- but through that connection, it introduced us to a lot of communities of desperate poverty, but also these are people that some of the doctors knew over time, and they helped us figure out who's, who's hardworking, who's reliable, 
and we took that kind of inside local knowledge and then used the Grameen model. And what we do is, you know, obviously we're loaning in an international country. These people are poor. They don't have collateral. Um, so, we, you know, we've got to be creative in how we structure the loans. So we use the Grameen model, which basically says we make loans in groups of five people each. Um, they form their own kind of alliance of who's going to be there in their lending little group. Um, but what we have them do is they have to cross-guarantee each other. So we make a loan of like $300 to each of them for their for running and financing their little businesses. That's creative. But they have to guarantee each other. And if any one of them fails to pay back, then we don't make loans to any of the other four. And so they put peer pressure on each other to make imagine. sure they come through. And amazingly, our our experience now in um, loaning to them is we're just starting our eighth year down there, and we've had almost 99% repayment rate. Of yeah. the hundreds of loans that I've made, I've only had um, so far um, six of them that's gone into default. And I'm reading through the report here that you sent me, and I think this is dated back to March of, the, of this year, so this is, this is six months old or so now, but even... Even uh, even then, I mean, you're looking at the total number of loans made in Haiti. I mean, 180 retail loans for a value of $42,600, 460 yeah. agriculture loans at $56,800. And then you go down to the Dominican yeah. Republic where you've made 60 retail loans at $28,000. And you have a 99% repayment rate is just phenomenal. Yeah. It sounds like you've structured that, that incentive program out quite nicely. It sounds like it's working. It, it has. We've been really fortunate with that. We try to go slow, um, ask a lot of questions, do due diligence. Um, so much of good lending, you know, is about character and hard work and opportunity. Um, we only make loans to people who are, again, currently they they've got a small business or a you know a farm or something that they're running. Um, but doing that solidarity group model where they have to cross guarantee each other, that really incentivizes them because they they. They figure out, you know, this may be their one and only shot out of poverty. Yep. If somebody's willing to come in, partner with them, and we're not giving them a handout at all, but this is a loan. They've got to make it work, and if they can make it work, pay us back, um, you know, then then they've got an opportunity to get it renewed, um, maybe even scale it up after a couple of cycles. But again, we want to be careful we don't get them stuck in some kind of debt trap. Yeah. Um, my long-term goal is, that, you know, it might take a decade, but I'd love for them to be able to build their own businesses so that they don't need me anymore. Uh, that's my that's my long-term goal with, with most of these borrowers. That is just But it's so also great. Fun, fun to see, you know, quite a few of our borrowers are females. And I've heard story after story where, you know, I'm asking up front, for some of these potential bars when we're interviewing them, I ask, what do you want to do with the money? And they tell me about their business model. And then I, I say, why, why are you doing this? And they they tell me things like, I've got four kids, and right now I can only send the, the oldest to school. Three of my kids can't go to school. And so they tell me the profits I make from this, I want to be, be able to send all four of my kids to school. And so there's this leveraging effect. Not only are we helping them grow their business, but now we're hearing stories of dozens and dozens of kids being able to go to school. And school down there, it only cost about $70 a year to go to school. <laughs> but many of the parents didn't even have $70 to send some of their kids to school. 
And so when you do things like this, you get that leveraging effect of helping them get dignity and growing and developing a business. Kids are starting to go to school now. Food's on the table. They don't have to worry about, you know, the next meal. I mean, it's still tight. It's still hard. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not the end-all, be-all. But we are helping them incrementally take that, that one more step up out of poverty. And, and you know, we just, we just as we can, as we grow the fund um, here in, in the states on campus, that just then allows us to grow what we have in our loan pool down there. Well, I love that. It, it sounds like fun. it sounds like y'all. I mean, are just doing some really good things with the fun there. And I tell you, when I was down there, I, I, I was so impressed by the students, by by you all, the staff. I mean, just it, just an amazing thing you're doing here with with the fun. And I'm glad you've had a chance to tell our listeners about it today. Philip Swicegood, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us this week. Glad to do it. Joining me in the studio this week, as always, via Skype, is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, I know it's getting cold where you are. It's cold where we are, but did you have a good weekend? It is, and fortunately, I don't have to leave the house, so sorry <laughs> sorry for you guys. Yeah, um, it, yeah. It was a good weekend, just cold and rainy the entire time. It, it's a pain to you know, schlep the kids around when it's 35 and rainy. Yeah, when you got to carry them around, that's, uh, I tell you, when they hit that age where they can start <laughs> getting in and out of the car on their own and... Uh, you know, you don't have to change as many diapers. Life gets a little bit easier. <laughs> Hopefully none, eventually. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's the goal. <laughs> uh, before we get to our lead story today, I want to remind our listeners that support for Industry Focus comes from NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Every company battles challenges as they grow, updating manual processes, replacing inefficient systems, getting a handle on cash flow. I mean, hey, everybody wants that cash flow. That's a business's lifeblood. As you scale, you'll need software that can handle that growth. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. So Matt, leading into this week, the end of last week, we you know this has been a tremendous uh, past few days for the market, not in the good way. It seems like there has been an awful lot of selling, um, a lot of people running for the exits here for whatever reason. It seems like we could probably pinpoint a few different headlines to this behavior, uh, but but I you know I think regardless it's a very good lesson for all investors that investing is never a straight line up right we talk about this in in the reasons why we believe that long term investing works generally speaking the numbers bear that out but it doesn't come without its lumps in the short run and we've certainly seen and taken a few of those lumps here the past few days uh, what is, what stands out to you in regard to this market selling and and, and uh, what should we as investors be doing about it. Well, there's a couple of, of kind of main root causes that we could pinpoint. Uh, the trade war skirmish, whatever you want to call it, is an obvious one. Um, not necessarily that it's going to be bad in the long run. It's as um, if you haven't been following the news, the U.S. and China agreed to a 90-day period starting December 1st to kind of continue their trade talks and try to find a deal, and the U.S. kind of backed off on some of its tariffs. Um, most experts think a deal will eventually happen, and nobody wants 25% tariffs, but certain things need to happen. China's been acting unfairly for some time. 
So this isn't a long-term negative, but it's very uncertain in the meantime, and the market hates uncertainty, which is why every time a headline, good or bad, involving trade pops up, you see the market go crazy one way or the other. <laughs> so that's definitely one kind of factor that is seems to be making the market a little more volatile than usual. More volatile than usual. Um, the other thing, uh, interest rates. People are kind of uncertain about how the economy is slowing down, if at all. Um, and the latest talk is that the Fed might have to pump the brakes when it comes to raising interest rates. Um, if you're not, if you haven't been reading up with the the Fed's reports, after the latest Fed meeting, the general consensus was that they're going to raise rates in December and another three times in 2019. That's a pretty aggressive plan. But the latest indication is that that might not happen at all. Um, they might raise in December and then kind of call it quits for the time being. They might not go in December at all is kind of the latest rumor. So what's the value in all this prognosticating? I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but it seems like every no. day this narrative changes a little bit, and I'm sure that investors get frustrated by it. Why do you think why do you think that where where is the value in that prognostication? I mean, should it even be something that's practiced? Uh, I mean, projections are always useful. I tend to look at the Fed's projections more than, you know, the experts I see on CNBC or, or, you know, any of the headlines I read, um, if the Fed says that the economy is good enough to raise rates in December and they're the ones who are actually going to make the decision, (laughs) you know, it makes sense to me that they're the ones who I'm going to listen to. Makes sense. But, you know, having said that, there's a lot of noise out there and investors are emotional beings and tend to overreact to things. Um, if, you know, one whisper has says the economy might be slowing down, someone else is going to find a reason why that might be true, and then another reason. And before you know it, you know, the the, the economy. I mean, this is the most pessimistic I've ever seen it when unemployment was below four percent, wages are growing. I so yes, there's some value in it, but don't confuse good projections with noise. Yeah, is kind of a good way to put it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, we we've talked about this all week, uh, last week, and and over the weekend leading into today. Um, and, and the one thing that stands out to me, uh, we've seen a lot of talk about, is in regard to the yield curve, right? And how this flattening and inversion of the yield curve. And I'll, I'll let you explain that in just a second. But but I, I think ultimately what I've taken away from this is even the talk about it. Uh, there are these big trading platforms, these institutional investors that rely a lot today on algorithms and programmatic trading uh, to buy and sell at, at given points in time. And, it, and, and this flattening of the yield curve seems to be one of those rules that that dictates those those algorithms. And so it's it's almost like it's beyond human control. It's just like if if this happens, then this happens, then boom, the computer says sell. And then you see this flood of selling, and there's nothing that can really be done to stop it. Uh, talk a little bit about this yield curve, what it is, and why it matters or shouldn't matter for investors. Sure. Well, the yield curve basically refers to the different durations of interest-bearing interest investments, bonds specifically. Um, in a healthy market, the longer maturity a bond is, the higher an interest rate is going to pay. For example, a 10-year bond should pay more than a comparable five-year bond, which should pay more than a two-year bond, and so on and so on. So, 
in a healthy market, you might see like a 2% yield on the two-year, a 3% yield on the five-year, a 4% on the 10-year, or something like that. Um, a flat yield curve means that the rates are getting very similar, which is kind of where we're at right now. Um, other than the 30-year, pretty much all of the yields from treasury bonds are between 25 and 3%. That's a pretty flat yield curve, historically speaking. Where an inversion means is when the longer maturity bonds actually pay out lower rates than some of the shorter maturity bonds. Um, we have a what I call a partial inversion right now. Um, as we're talking, just kind of glancing over at the, my notes, the two-year treasury yields slightly more than the five-year. Now, a textbook curve inversion would be the two-year and the 10-year flip-flopping. So as you mentioned, algorithmic trading tends to take its cues from things like this. So if we see the two-year and 10-year yield invert, which right now they're about 14 basis points apart. So, you know, there's a little breathing room. If we see those invert, it could be lookout below when it comes to algorithmic selling. Yeah, and there's nothing we can do about that. I mean, I know they've they've tried to play some stop gaps in there to where the, the market I think what is it now? Ten percent, perhaps. If the market falls ten percent in any given day, then things immediately halt. Trading immediately halts, so that uh, everybody can maybe catch a breath and, and try to make sure that the world isn't actually coming to an end. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just it seems to me that that I guess what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that for investors like us, business focused investors, when we're looking at companies that we want to own. This yield curve doesn't really matter all that much in the grand scheme of things. I mean, Amazon's still going to be Amazon regardless of what this yield curve is doing, right? Right. And if anything, this creates some good buying opportunities okay. um, for, for long-minded investors. Um, there's nothing interest rates are doing that are, is going to affect anything 20 years from now. So if you're investing for the long haul, this is, you know, the market's going on sale, especially in some sectors. Um, inverted yield curves are tend to also kind of be recession predictors. They're not perfectly reliable and you know, a recession usually happens about a year after year to two years after you get inverted yield curve. So you know, the financial industry is really heavily affected being this is the financial show. <laughs> um, bank stocks are that's why bank stocks are probably the most hardest hit part of the market over the past few days when the when interest rates have been going crazy. So Kind of, th this is creating a lot of little pockets of the market that are trading at really steep discounts, and in the short term, it could be could be for a reason. Um, lower long term yields we've discussed in previous episodes tend to weigh on bank profits, so banks could see profits shrink in the short term over this. But over the long term, you know, Bank of America is still Bank of America. Wells Fargo is still Wells Fargo. Goldman Sachs is still, you know. Goldman Sachs, one of the biggest investment banks in the world. Um, the yield curve is doing nothing to the underlying business health of most of these businesses for for the time being. Anyway, there it could go, you know, in an extreme direction. If we have like an extreme inversion, that could really hurt some of these bank profits to the point where it could affect their business. But we're, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Bottom line is, from a long term perspective, you can. Find, go bargain hunting at these prices. Well, that's good information to know. I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. Uh, speaking of listeners, I'd like to tap into Twitter here real quick and just read a couple of 
tweets that came out over the week. Uh, first up here, we have Daniel at DJISDJ. Daniel writes, Value matters, of course, but I'm always interested in a company whose product I use and enjoy every single day. Daniel couldn't agree more. Um, and that was actually in response to a tweet I'd fired out over this impending Slack IPO. Uh, it struck me with the Slack IPO that they're seeking this $10 billion valuation, which seems pretty high. Uh, but then I also noted that Slack is a first screen app on my phone that I <laughs> use a lot every day, uh, seven days a week. So, uh, yeah, I, I I definitely like investing in in those kinds of companies, or at least getting them on my watch list, right, Matt? Yeah, I mean, well, Slack. I'm out of the corner of my left eye. I can see my <laughs> Slack window pulled up on my screen right now, actually. Yeah. So I, I hear you in a product that I use every day, but there's a difference between usage and valuation. Um, I mean, Snapchat's a first page app for a lot of people. I wouldn't exactly call that worth what it was trading for at its IPO. Very good point. So. It, 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 price is what you pay, value is what you get, is one of my all-time favorite Warren Buffett quotes that kind of applies there. Yep. I think, yeah, if anything, it piques your interest. Dig a little bit more of the financials, but certainly understand how the company makes money uh, before you uh, before you, you jump the gun there. Um, and Maria at MSTPC writes, that's right, I love industry focus and listen to them almost every morning while doing my makeup. Hashtag Spotify Wrapped 2018. Maria, thanks. Thanks so much. We're very thrilled that we can be part of your morning routine. I hope that uh, you know we can change that almost to just every morning. Let's just be part of your routine five mornings a week. That would be pretty sweet. Uh, well, every Monday at least. I hope every Monday. No question. I mean, hey, if you're not listening to financials, <laughs> I mean, you're missing out. I mean, that's money, right? Everybody loves money. Uh, seriously, though, Maria, thank you for the kind words. We're glad to know that we can play a role uh, in your daily routine. Uh, and, and Matt, speaking of, of routines here, before we get into our one to watch this week, you write a column for the USA Today uh, every week, the Ask a Fool column for the USA Today. And you had a great idea uh, to bring more answers and ideas to our listeners. Uh, so tell us about it. Right. And Jason and I love getting your your questions about you know bank stocks, the fintech, the war on cash, things like that. But what this is, it's basically think of it like a dear Abby for the for the investing world, um, where you can ask kind of general investing questions and have them answered um, in the paper. So um, we're putting out an open call for any of your investing questions. Could be simple, could be complex. Maybe we can even answer some on the show if they don't make it into the the USA Today edition. Um, but we'd lo- I'd love to hear those. Reach out to our Twitter or my Twitter personally. Uh, my handle is at TMFMathGuy. Um, and looking forward to hearing some of your questions and hopefully helping some people out. Absolutely. And this isn't limited to just financials, right? You're talking about just some general investing questions, things that uh, span that entire investing universe. I love that idea, and I'm glad you glad you brought that up. And as Matt said, you can reach out to him on Twitter, at TMFMathGuy. Of course, you can reach out to us on Twitter, at MFIndustryFocus. And as always, you can email us, IndustryFocus at Fool.com. And hey, maybe Matt will make you famous. Can't know if you don't try, folks, to get those questions in. All right, Matt, let's wrap this week up here with one to watch. What stock has uh, piqued your interest for this coming week? Well, it's really tough to pick just one bank stock because <laughs> they've been beaten, beaten down so much. And I wish I could own them all, which I've recommended an ETF that owns them all before. But 
One in particular I am curious about right now is Bank of America. Um, I've it's probably the it's the bank stock I've owned the longest in my portfolio. It's one of my biggest investments. It's been crushed lately, especially with this interest rate saga. Bank of America is one of the more sensitive banks to long-term interest rates. Um, they have a very disproportional level of non-interest-bearing deposits. So, meaning that with those deposits, when they loan them out, whatever interest rate they get is pure profit. So, if the long end of the curve is kind of overblown in its downtrend, if the economy is a little better than people seem to give it credit for right now, and if the Fed keeps going with their its interest rate hikes, Bank of America could be a pretty big beneficiary. Plus, right now it's actually trading for just below its book value for the first time since before tax reform pushed its profits higher. So it's it's looking like a great bargain right now. And what's the ticker for Bank of America? That is BAC. Okay, good stuff. Well, uh, yeah, I'm taking a page from your book here and going with a bank. I'm going with Wells Fargo this week. Ticker is WFC. You know, it has not been a good year for Wells Fargo. Stock down 20% uh, over, really 20% now when you consider today's selling, as as they continue to try to put a number of scandals behind them. And over the summer, Wells was required to submit a plan to regulators uh, for improving their compliance and operational risk management and. Ultimately, that plan failed to win Fed approval. Not good. That means they got to go back to the drawing board. Uh, they're firing around three, uh, firing around three dozen district managers in connection with the sales practices that got them in this trouble. Uh, they continue to operate under that asset cap uh, that you've mentioned before, meaning they essentially can't grow until they have the permission uh, to do so. And I think really this all kind of boils down to me: is should Tim Sloan, the CEO of the company, should he be leading this company going forward? I I never really was a big fan of his taking that CEO role because I he was the CFO I believe before um, he'd been with the company for a while so a lot of this stuff was happening under his watch already. With all of that said, Wells Fargo is a huge bank with a tremendous presence in our mortgage market, and it's not a bank that can just disappear. I mean, uh, everybody's got to determine their own line, but I can't help but wonder if maybe there isn't an opportunity uh, uh, brewing here for for folks looking to get that exposure to Wells Fargo. It, it generally speaking, still has a lot going for it, um, snafus aside. So worth keeping our eyes on um, in in the coming weeks to see if they can't get their house in order. Matt, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's always great talking with you. You stay warm there in South Carolina this week, all right? (laughs) Same to you up there. Thanks, buddy. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel and Philip Swicegood, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 